Welcome to Volume 3 of this Uvula audio presentation of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. All Uvula audio presentations are in the public domain. Your narrator is Craig Nickerson. I think that both of us simultaneously cried out in mixed awe, wonder, terror, and disbelief in our own senses as we finally cleared the pass and saw what lay beyond. Of course, we must have had some natural theory in the back of our heads to steady our faculties for the moment. Probably we thought of such things as the grotesquely weathered stones of the Garden of the Gods in Colorado, or the fantastically symmetrical wind-carved rocks of the Arizona desert. Perhaps we even half thought the sight a mirage like that we had seen the morning before on first approaching those mountains of madness. We must have had some such normal notions to fall back upon as our eyes swept that limitless, tempest-scarred plateau and grasped the almost endless labyrinth of colossal, regular, and geometrically eurythmic stone masses which reared their crumbled and pitted crests above a glacial sheet not more than forty or fifty feet deep at its thickest, and in places obviously thinner. The effect of the monstrous sight was indescribable, for some fiendish violation of no natural law seemed certain at the outset. Here, on a hellishly ancient tableland fully 20,000 feet high, and in a climate deadly to habitation since a pre-human age not less than 500,000 years ago, there stretched nearly to the vision's limit a tangle of orderly stone which only the desperation of mental self-defense could possibly attribute to any but a conscious and artificial cause. We have previously dismissed, so far as serious thought was concerned, any theory that the cubes and ramparts of the mountainsides were other than natural in origin. How could they be otherwise, when man himself could scarcely have been differentiated from the great apes at the time when this region succumbed to the present unbroken reign of glacial death? Yet now the sway of reason seemed irrefutably shaken for this cyclopean maze of squared, curved, and angled blocks had features which cut off all comfortable refuge. It was very clearly the blasphemous city of the mirage in stark, objective, and ineluctable reality. That damnable portent had had a material basis after all. There had been some horizontal stratum of ice dust in the upper air, and this shocking stone survival had projected its image across the mountains according to the simple laws of reflection. Of course, the phantom had been twisted and exaggerated, and had contained things which the real source did not contain. Yet now, as we saw that real source, we thought it even more hideous and menacing than its distant image. Only the incredible, unhuman massiveness of these vast stone towers and ramparts had saved the frightful thing from utter annihilation in the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years it had brooded there amidst the blasts of a bleak upland. Corona Mundi, roof of the world, all sorts of fantastic phrases sprang to our lips as we looked dizzily down at the unbelievable spectacle. I thought again of the eldritch primal myths that had so persistently haunted me since my first sight of this dead Antarctic world, of the demoniac plateau of Lang, of the Migo or abominable snowmen of the Himalayas, of the narcotic manuscripts with their pre-human implications, of the Cthulhu cult, of the Necronomicon, 
and of the Hyperborean legends of formless Sothagawa and the worst and formless star spawn associated with that semi-entity. For boundless miles in every direction the thing stretched off with very little thinning. Indeed, as our eyes followed it to the right and left along the base of the low, gradual foothills which separated it from the actual mountain rim, we decided that we could see no thinning at all except for an interruption at the left of the pass through which we had come. We had merely struck at random a limited part of something of incalculable extent. The foothills were more sparsely sprinkled with grotesque stone structures, linking the terrible city to the already familiar cubes and ramparts which evidently formed its mountain outposts. These latter, as well as the queer cave mouths, were as thick on the inner as on the outer sides of the mountains. The nameless stone labyrinth consisted, for the most part, of walls from 10 to 150 feet in ice-clear height, and of a thickness varying from 5 to 10 feet. It was composed mostly of prodigious blocks of dark primordial slate, schist, and sandstone, blocks in many cases as large as 4 by 6 by 8 feet, though in several places it seemed to be carved out of a solid, uneven bedrock of Precambrian slate. The buildings were far from equal in size, there being innumerable honeycomb arrangements of enormous extent as well as smaller separate structures. The general shape of these things tended to be conical, pyramidal, or terraced. Though there were many perfect cylinders, perfect cubes, clusters of cubes, and other rectangular forms, and a peculiar sprinkling of angled edifices whose five-pointed ground plan roughly suggested modern fortifications, the builders had made constant and expert use of the principle of the arch, and domes that probably existed in the city's heyday. The whole tangle was monstrously weathered, and the glacial surface from which the towers projected was strewn with fallen blocks and immemorial debris. Where the glaciation was transparent, we could see the lower parts of the gigantic piles and noticed the ice-preserved stone bridges which connected the different towers at varying distances above the ground. On the exposed walls we could detect the scarred places where other and higher bridges of the same sort had existed. Closer inspection revealed countless largish windows, some of which were closed with shutters of a petrified material originally wood, though most gaped open in a sinister and menacing fashion. Many of the ruins, of course, were roofless, and with uneven though wind-rounded upper edges, whilst others, of a more sharply conical or pyramidal model, or else protected by higher surrounding structures, preserved intact outlines despite the omnipresent crumbling and pitting. With the field glass we could barely make out what seemed to be sculptural decorations in horizontal bands, decorations including those curious groups of dots whose presence on the ancient soapstones now assumed a vastly larger significance. In many places the buildings were totally ruined and the ice sheet deeply riven from various geologic causes. In other places the stonework was worn down to the very level of the glaciation. One broad swath extending from the plateau's interior to a cleft in the foothills about a mile to the left of the pass we had traversed was wholly free of buildings, and probably represented, we concluded, the course of some great river which in tertiary times, millions of years ago, had poured through the city 
into some prodigious subterranean abyss of the Great Barrier Range. Certainly this was above all a region of caves, gulfs, and underground secrets beyond human penetration. Looking back to our sensations and recalling our dazedness at viewing this monstrous survival from eons we had thought pre-human, I can only wonder that we preserved the semblance of equilibrium which we did. Of course, we knew that something, chronology, scientific theory, or our own consciousness, was woefully awry. Yet we kept enough poise to guide the plane, observe many things quite minutely, and take a careful series of photographs which may yet serve both us and the world in good stead. In my case, ingrained scientific habit may have helped, for above all my bewilderment and sense of menace, there burned a dominant curiosity to fathom more of this age-old secret. To know what sort of beings had built and lived in this incalculably gigantic place, and what relation to the general world of its time or of other times so unique a concentration of life could have had. For this place could be no ordinary city. It must have formed the primary nucleus and center of some archaic and unbelievable chapter of Earth's history, whose outward ramifications, recalled only dimly in the most obscure and distorted myths, had vanished utterly amidst the chaos of terrene convulsions, long before any human race we know had shambled out of apedom. Here sprawled the Paleogean megalopolis compared with which the fabled Atlantis and Lemuria Camorium and Uzeldarum and Olathoa in the land of Lomar are recent things of today, not even of yesterday. A megalopolis ranking with such whispered pre-human blasphemies as Volusia, Rulia, Ib in the land of Menar, and the nameless city of Arabia Deserta. As we flew above the tangle of stark titan towers, my imagination sometimes escaped all bounds, and roved aimlessly in realms of fantastic associations, even weaving links betwixt this lost world and some of my own wildest dreams concerning the mad horror at the camp. The plane's fuel tank, in the interest of greater lightness, had been only partly filled, as we now had to exert caution in our explorations. Even so, however, we covered an enormous extent of ground, or rather air, after swooping down to a level where the wind became virtually negligible. There seemed to be no limit to the mountain range or to the length of the frightful stone city which bordered its inner foothills. Fifty miles of flight in each direction showed no major change in the labyrinth of rock and masonry that clawed up corpse-like through the eternal ice. There were, though, some highly absorbing diversifications, such as the carvings on the canyon, where that broad river had once pierced the foothills and approached its sinking place in the Great Range. The headlands at the stream's entrance had been boldly carved into cyclopean pylons, and something about the ridgy, barrel-shaped design stirred up oddly vague, hateful, and confusing semi-remembrances in both Danforth and me. We also came upon several star-shaped open spaces, evidently public squares, and noted various undulations in the terrain. Where a sharp hill rose, it was generally hollowed out into some sort of rambling stone edifice. But there were at least two exceptions. Of these latter, one was too badly weathered to disclose what had been on the jutting eminence, 
while the other still bore a fantastic conical monument carved out of the solid rock and roughly resembling such things as the well-known snake tomb in the ancient valley of Petra. Flying inland from the mountains, we discovered that the city was not of infinite width, even though its length along the foothills seemed endless. After about thirty miles, the grotesque stone buildings began to thin out, and in ten more miles we came to an unbroken waste virtually without signs of sentient artifice. The course of the river beyond the city seemed marked by a broad, depressed line, while the land assumed a somewhat greater ruggedness, seeming to slope slightly upward as it receded in the mist-hazed west. So far we had made no landing, and to leave the plateau without an attempt at entering some of the monstrous structures would have been inconceivable. Accordingly, we decided to find a smooth place on the foothills near our navigable pass, there grounding the plane and preparing to do some exploration on foot. Though these gradual slopes were partly covered with a scattering of ruins, low flying soon disclosed an ample number of possible landing places. Selecting that nearest to the pass, since our next flight would be across the Great Range and back to camp, we succeeded about 12.30 p.m. in coming down on a smooth, hard snowfield wholly devoid of obstacles, and well adapted to a swift and favorable takeoff later on. It did not seem necessary to protect the plane with the snow banking for so brief a time and in so comfortable an absence of high winds at this level. Hence we merely saw that the landing skis were safely lodged and that the vital parts of the mechanism were guarded against the cold. For our foot journey we discarded the heaviest of our flying furs and took with us a small outfit consisting of pocket compass, hand camera, light provisions, voluminous notebooks and paper, geologist's hammer and chisel, specimen bags, coil of climbing rope, and powerful electric torches with extra batteries. This equipment having been carried in the plane on the chance that we might be able to effect a landing, take ground pictures, make drawings and topographical sketches, and obtain rock specimens from some bare slope, outcropping, or mountain cave. Fortunately, we had a supply of extra paper to tear up, place in a spare specimen bag, and use on the ancient principle of hare and hounds for marking our course in any interior mazes we might be able to penetrate. This had been brought in case we found some cave system with air quiet enough to allow such a rapid and easy method in place of the usual rock-chipping method of trailblazing. Walking cautiously downhill over the crusted snow toward the stupendous stone labyrinth that loomed against the opalescent west, we felt almost as keen a sense of imminent marvels as we had felt on approaching the unfathomed mountain pass four hours previously. True, we had become visually familiar with the incredible secret concealed by the barrier peaks, yet the prospect of actually entering primordial walls reared by conscious beings perhaps millions of years ago before any known race of men could exist, was nonetheless awesome and potentially terrible in its implications of cosmic abnormality. Though the thinness of the air at this prodigious altitude made exertion somewhat more difficult than usual, both Danforth and I found ourselves bearing up very well and felt equal to almost any task which might fall to our lot. It took only a few steps to bring us to a shapeless ruin worn level with the snow, while ten or fifteen rods farther on, 
there was a huge roofless rampart still complete in its gigantic five-pointed outline and rising to an irregular height of ten or eleven feet. For this ladder we headed, and when at last we were able actually to touch its weathered cyclopean blocks, we felt that we had established an unprecedented and almost blasphemous link with forgotten eons normally closed to our species. This rampart, shaped like a star and perhaps 300 feet from point to point, was built of Jurassic sandstone blocks of irregular size, averaging 6 by 8 feet in surface. There was a row of arched loopholes or windows about 4 feet wide and 5 feet high, spaced quite symmetrically along the points of the star and at its inner angles, and with the bottoms about 4 feet from the glaciated surface. Looking through these, we could see that the masonry was fully five feet thick, that there were no partitions remaining within, and that there were traces of banded carvings or bas-reliefs on the interior walls. Facts we had indeed guessed before when flying low over this rampart and others like it. The lower parts must have originally existed. All traces of such things were now wholly obscured by the deep layer of ice and snow at this point. We crawled through one of the windows and vainly tried to decipher the nearly effaced mural designs, but did not attempt to disturb the glaciated floor. Our orientation flights had indicated that many buildings in the city proper were less ice-choked, and that we might perhaps find wholly clear interiors leading down to the true ground level if we entered those structures still roofed at the top. Before we left the rampart, we photographed it carefully, and studied its mortarless cyclopean masonry with complete bewilderment. We wished that Pavity were present, where his engineering knowledge might have helped us guess how such titanic blocks could have been handled in that unbelievably remote age when the city and its outskirts were built up. The half-mile walk downhill to the actual city, with the upper wind shrieking vainly and savagely through the skyward peaks in the background, was something whose smallest details will always remain engraved on my mind. Only in fantastic nightmares could any human beings but Danforth and me conceive such optical effects. Between us and the churning vapors of the west lay that monstrous tangle of dark stone towers, its outre and incredible forms impressing us afresh at every new angle of vision. It was a mirage in solid stone, and were it not for the photographs, I would still doubt that such a thing could be. The general type of masonry was identical with that of the rampart we had examined, but the extravagant shapes which this masonry took in its urban manifestations were past all description. Even the pictures illustrate only one or two phases of its infinite bizarrery. Endless variety, preternatural massiveness, and utterly alien exoticism. There were geometrical forms for which in Euclid could scarcely find a name, cones of all degrees of irregularity and truncation, terraces of every sort of provocative disproportion, shafts with odd bulbous enlargements, broken columns in curious groups, and five-pointed or five-ridged arrangements of mad grotesqueness. As we drew nearer, we could see beneath certain transparent parts of the ice sheet and detect some of the tubular stone bridges that connected the crazily sprinkled structures at various heights. 
Of orderly streets there seemed to be none, the only broad open swath being a mile to the left, where the ancient river had doubtless flowed through the town into the mountains. Our field glasses showed the external horizontal bands of nearly effaced sculptures and dot groups to be very prevalent, and we could half imagine what the city must once have looked like, even though most of the roofs and tower tops had necessarily perished. As a whole, it had been a complex tangle of twisted lanes and alleys, all of them deep canyons, and some little better than tunnels because of the overhanging masonry or overarching bridges. Now, outspread below us, it looked like a dream fantasy against a westward mist, through whose northern end the low, reddish Antarctic sun of early afternoon was struggling to shine, and when for a moment that sun encountered a denser obstruction and plunged the scene into temporary shadow, the effect was subtly menacing in a way I could never hope to depict. Even the faint howling and piping of the unfelt wind in the great mountain passes behind us took on a wilder note of purposeful malignity. The last stage of our descent to the town was unusually steep and abrupt, and a rock outcropping at the edge where the grade changed led us to think that an artificial terrace had once existed there. Under the glaciation, we believed, there must have been a flight of steps or its equivalent. When at last we plunged into the labyrinthine town itself, clambering over fallen masonry and shrinking from the oppressive nearness and dwarfing height of omnipresent crumbling and pitted walls, our sensations again became such that I marvel at the amount of self-control we retained. Danforth was frankly jumpy and began making some offensively irrelevant speculations about the horror at the camp which I resented all the more because I could not help sharing certain conclusions forced upon us by many features of this morbid survival from nightmare antiquity. The speculations worked on his imagination, too, for in one place where a debris-littered alley turned a sharp corner, he insisted that he saw faint traces of ground markings which he did not like. Whilst elsewhere he stopped to listen to a subtle imaginary sound from some undefined point, a muffled musical piping, he said, not unlike that of the wind of the mountain caves, yet somehow disturbingly different. The ceaseless five-pointedness of the surrounding architecture and of the few distinguishable mural arabesques had a dimly sinister suggestiveness we could not escape and gave us a touch of terrible subconscious certainty concerning the primal entities which had reared and dwelt in this unhallowed place. Nevertheless, our scientific and adventurous souls were not wholly dead, and we mechanically carried out our program of chipping specimens from all the different rock types represented in the masonry. We wished a rather full set in order to draw better conclusions regarding the age of the place. Nothing in the great outer wall seemed to date from later than the Jurassic and Comanchean periods, nor was any piece of stone in the entire place of a greater recency than the Pliocene Age. In stark certainty, we were wandering amidst a death which had reigned at least 500,000 years, and in all probability even longer. As we proceeded through this maze of stone-shadowed twilight, we stopped at all available apertures to study interiors and investigate entrance possibilities. Some were above our reach, whilst others led only into ice-choked ruins as unroofed and barren as the rampart on the hill. One, 
though spacious and inviting, opened on a seemingly bottomless abyss without visible means of descent. Now and then we had a chance to study the petrified wood of a surviving shutter, and were impressed by the fabulous antiquity implied in the still discernible grain. These things had come from Mesozoic gymnosperms and conifers, especially Cretaceous cycads, and from fan palms and early angiosperms of plainly tertiary date. Nothing definitely later than the Pliocene could be discovered. In the placing of these shutters, whose edges showed the former presence of queer and long-vanished hinges, usage seemed to be varied, some being on the outer and some on the inner side of the deep embrasures. It seemed to have become wedged in place, thus surviving the rusting of their former and probably metallic fixtures and fastenings. After a time, we came across a row of windows, in the bulges of a colossal five-ridged cone of undamaged apex, which led into a vast, well-preserved room with stone flooring, but these were too high in the room to permit of descent without a rope. We had a rope with us, but did not wish to bother with this twenty-foot drop unless obliged to, especially in this thin plateau air where great demands were made upon the heart action. This enormous room was probably a hall or concourse of some sort, and our electric torches showed bold, distinct, and potentially startling sculptures arranged around the walls in broad horizontal bands separated by equally broad strips of conventional arabesques. We took careful note of this spot, planning to enter here unless a more easily gained interior were encountered. Finally, though, we did encounter exactly the opening we wished, an archway about six feet wide and ten feet high, marking the former end of an aerial bridge which had spanned an alley about five feet above the present level of glaciation. These archways, of course, were flush with upper-story floors, and in this case one of the floors still existed. The building thus accessible was a series of rectangular terraces on our left facing westward. That across the alley, where the other archway yawned, was a decrepit cylinder with no windows and with a curious bulge about ten feet above the aperture. It was totally dark inside, and the archway seemed to open on a well of illimitable emptiness. Heap debris made the entrance to the vast left-hand building doubly easy, if for a moment we hesitated before taking advantage of the long-wished chance. For though we had penetrated into this tangle of archaic mystery, it required fresh resolution to carry us actually inside a complete and surviving building of a fabulous elder world, whose nature was becoming more and more hideously plain to us. In the end, however, we made the plunge and scrambled up over the rubble into the gaping embrasure. The floor beyond was a great slate slabs and seemed to form the outlet of a long, high corridor with sculptured walls. Observing the many inner archways which led off from it and realizing the probable complexity of the nest of apartments within, we decided that we must begin our system of hare and hound trailblazing. Hitherto our compasses, together with frequent glimpses of the vast mountain range between the towers and our rear, had been enough to prevent our losing our way. But from now on, the artificial substitute would be necessary. Accordingly, we reduced our extra paper to shreds of suitable size, placed these in a bag to be carried by Danforth, 
and prepared to use them as economically as safety would allow. This method would probably gain us immunity from straying, since there did not appear to be any strong air currents inside the primordial masonry. If such should develop, or if our paper supply should give out, we could, of course, fall back on the more secure, though more tedious and retarding method of rock chipping. Just how extensive a territory we had opened up, it was impossible to guess without a trial. The close and frequent connection of the different buildings made it likely that we might cross from one to another on bridges underneath the ice, except where impeded by local collapses and geologic rifts. For very little glaciation seemed to have entered the massive constructions. Almost all the areas of transparent ice had revealed the submerged windows as tightly shuttered, as if the town had been left in that uniform state until the glacial sheet came to crystallize the lower part for all succeeding time. Indeed, one gained a curious impression that this place had been deliberately closed and deserted in some dim bygone eon, rather than overwhelmed by any sudden calamity or even gradual decay. Had the coming of the ice been foreseen, and had a nameless population left en masse to seek a less doomed abode? The precise physiographic conditions attending to the formation of the ice sheet at this point would have to wait for later solution. It had not very plainly been a grinding drive. Perhaps the pressure of accumulated snows had been responsible, and perhaps some flood from the river or from the bursting of some ancient glacial dam in the Great Range had helped to create the special state now observable. Imagination could conceive almost anything in connection with this place. It would be cumbrous to give a detailed, consecutive account of our wanderings inside that cavernous, eon-dead honeycomb of primal masonry, that monstrous lair of elder secrets which now echoed for the first time after uncounted epochs to the tread of human feet. This is especially true because so much of the horrible drama and revelation came from a mere study of the omnipresent mural carvings. Our flashlight photographs of those carvings will do much toward proving the truth of what we are now disclosing, and it is lamentable that we had not a larger film supply with us. As it was, we made crude notebook sketches of certain salient features after our films were used up. The building which we had entered was one of great size and elaborateness, and gave us an impressive notion of the architecture of that nameless geologic past. The inner partitions were less massive than the outer walls, but on the lower levels were excellently preserved. Labyrinth and complexity, involving curiously irregular differences in floor levels, characterized the entire arrangement, and we should certainly have been lost at the very outset but for the trail of torn paper left behind us. We decided to explore the more decrepit upper floors first of all, hence climbed aloft in the maze for a distance of some one hundred feet to where the topmost tier of chambers yawned snowily and ruinously open to the polar sky. Ascent was effected over the steep, traversely ribbed stone ramps or inclined planes which everywhere served in lieu of stairs. The rooms we encountered were all of imaginable shapes and proportions, ranging from five-pointed stars to triangles and perfect cubes. It might be safe to say that their general average was about 30 by 30 feet in floor area and 20 feet in height, though many larger apartments existed. 
After thoroughly examining the upper regions and the glacial level, we descended story by story into the submerged part, where indeed we soon saw we were in a continuous maze of connected chambers and passages, probably leading over unlimited areas outside this particular building. The cyclopean massiveness and giganticism of everything about us became curiously oppressive, and there was something vaguely but deeply unhuman in all the contours, dimensions, proportions, decorations, and constructional nuances of the blasphemously archaic stonework. We soon realized from what the carvings revealed that this monstrous city was many million years old. We cannot yet explain the engineering principles used in the anomalous balancing and adjustment of the vast rock masses, though the function of the arch was clearly much relied on. The rooms we visited were wholly bare of all portable contents, a circumstance which sustained our belief in the city's deliberate desertion. The prime decorative feature was the almost universal system of mural sculpture, which tended to run in continuous horizontal bands three feet wide and arranged from floor to ceiling in alternation with bands of equal width given over to geometrical arabesques. There were exceptions to this rule of arrangement, but its preponderance was overwhelming. Often, however, a series of smooth cartouches containing oddly patterned groups of dots would be sunk along one of the arabesque bands. The technique we soon saw was mature, accomplished, and aesthetically evolved to the highest degree of civilized mastery. Though utterly alien in every detail to any known art tradition of the human race, in delicacy of execution no sculpture I have ever seen could approach it. The minutest details of elaborate vegetation or of animal life were rendered with astonishing vividness despite the bold scale of the carvings, whilst the conventional designs were marvels of skillful intricacy. The arabesques displayed a profound use of mathematical principles and were made up of obscurely symmetrical curves and angles based on the quantity of five. The pictorial bands followed a highly formalized tradition and involved a peculiar treatment of perspective, but had an artistic force that moved us profoundly notwithstanding the intervening gulf of vast geologic periods. Their method of design hinged on a singular juxtaposition of the cross-section with the two-dimensional silhouette, and embodied an analytical psychology beyond that of any known race of antiquity. It is useless to try to compare this art with any represented in our museums. Those who see our photographs will probably find its closest analog in certain grotesque conceptions of the most daring futurists. The arabesque tracery consisted altogether of depressed lines whose depth on unweathered walls varied from one to two inches. When cartouches with dot groups appeared, Evidently, as inscriptions in some unknown and primordial language and alphabet, the depression of the smooth surface was perhaps an inch and a half, and of the dots perhaps a half inch more. The pictorial bands were in countersunk low relief, their background being depressed about two inches from the original wall surface. In some specimens, marks of a former coloration could be detected, though for the most part the untold eons had disintegrated and banished any pigments which may have been applied. The more one studied the marvelous technique, the more one admired the things, 
Beneath their strict conventionalism, one could grasp the minute and accurate observation and graphic skill of the artists. And indeed, the very conventions themselves serve to symbolize and accentuate the real essence or vital differentiation of every object delineated. We felt, too, that besides these recognizable excellences, there were others lurking beyond the reach of our perceptions. Certain touches here and there gave vague hints of latent symbols and stimuli which another mental and emotional background and a fuller or different sensory equipment might have made a profound and poignant significance to us. The subject matter of the sculptures obviously came from the life of the vanished epoch of their creation and contained a large proportion of evident history. It is this abnormal historic-mindedness of the primal race a chance circumstance operating through coincidence miraculously in our favor, which made the carving so awesomely informative to us, and which caused us to place their photography and transcription above all other considerations. In certain rooms, the dominant arrangement was varied by the presence of maps, astronomical charts, and other scientific designs on an enlarged scale, these things giving a naive and terrible corroboration to what we gathered from the pictorial phrases and dados. In hinting at what the whole revealed, I can only hope that my account will not arouse a curiosity greater than sane caution on the part of those who believe me at all. It would be tragic if any were to be allured to that realm of death and horror by the very warning meant to discourage them. Interrupting these sculptured walls were high windows and massive 12-foot doorways, both now and then retaining the petrified wooden planks, elaborately carved and polished, of the actual shutters and doors. All metal fixtures had long ago vanished, but some of the doors remained in place and had to be forced aside as we progressed from room to room. Window frames with odd transparent panes, mostly elliptical, survived here and there, though in no considerable quantity. There were also frequent niches of great magnitude, generally empty, but once in a while containing some bizarre object carved from green soapstone, which was either broken or perhaps held too inferior to warrant removal. Other apertures were undoubtedly connected with bygone mechanical facilities, heating, lighting, and the like, of a sort suggested in many of the carvings, Ceilings tended to be plain, but had sometimes been inlaid with green soapstone or other tiles, mostly fallen now. Floors were also paved with such tiles, though plain stonework predominated. As I have said, all furniture and other movables were absent, but the sculptures gave a clear idea of the strange devices which had once filled these tomb-like echoing rooms. Above the glacial sheet, the floors were generally thick with detritus, litter, and debris. But farther down, this condition decreased. In some of the lower chambers and corridors, there was little more than gritty dust or ancient incrustations, while occasional areas had an uncanny air of newly swept immaculateness. Of course, where rifts or collapses had occurred, the lower levels were as littered as the upper ones. A central court, as in other structures we had seen from the air, saved the inner regions from total darkness, so that we seldom had to use our electric torches in the upper rooms except when studying sculptured details. Below the ice cap, however, the twilight deepened, and in many parts of the tangled ground level there was an approach to absolute blackness. 
to form an even rudimentary idea of our thoughts and feelings as we penetrated this eon-silent maze of unhuman masonry. One must correlate a hopelessly bewildering chaos of fugitive moods, memories, and impressions. The sheer appalling antiquity and lethal desolation of the place were enough to overwhelm almost any sensitive person. But added to these elements were the recent unexplained horror at the camp and the revelations all too soon affected by the terrible mural sculptures around us. The moment we came upon a perfect section of carving where no ambiguity of interpretation could exist, it took only a brief study to give us the hideous truth, a truth which it would be naive to claim Danforth and I had not independently suspected before, though we had carefully refrained from even hinting it to each other. There could now be no further merciful doubt about the nature of the beings which had built and inhabited this monstrous dead city millions of years ago, when man's ancestors were primitive archaic mammals and vast dinosaurs roamed the tropical steppes of Europe and Asia. We had previously clung to a desperate alternative and insisted each to himself that the omnipresence of the five-pointed motif meant only some cultural or religious exaltation of the Archean natural object which had so patently embodied the quality of five-pointedness. As the decorative motifs of Minoan Crete exalted the sacred bull, those of Egypt the scarabaeus, those of Rome the wolf and the eagle, and those of various savage tribes some chosen totem animal. But this lone refuge was now stripped from us, and we were forced to face definitely the reason-shaking realization which the listener to this testament has doubtless long ago anticipated. I can scarcely bear to give voice to it even now, but perhaps that will not be necessary. The things once rearing and dwelling in this frightful masonry in the age of dinosaurs were not indeed dinosaurs, but far worse. Mere dinosaurs were new and almost brainless objects, but the builders of the city were wise and old, and had left certain traces in rocks even then laid down well nigh a thousand million years. Rocks laid down before the true life of Earth had advanced beyond plastic groups of cells. Rocks laid down before the true life of Earth had existed at all. They were the makers and enslavers of that life, and above all doubt the originals of the fiendish elder myths which things like the Narcotic Manuscripts and the Necronomicon affrightedly hint about. They were the great old ones that had filtered down from the stars when Earth was young, the beings whose substance and alien evolution had shaped, and whose powers were such as this planet had never bred. And to think that only the day before, Danforth and I had actually looked upon fragments of their millennially fossilized substance, and that poor Lake and his party had seen their complete outlines. It is, of course, impossible for me to relate in proper order the stages by which we picked up what we know of that monstrous chapter of pre-human life. After the first shock of the certain revelation, we had to pause a while to recuperate, and it was fully three o'clock before we got started on our actual tour of systematic research. The sculptures in the building we entered were of relatively late date, perhaps two million years ago, 
as checked up by geological, biological, and astronomical features, and embodied an art which would be called decadent in comparison with that of specimens we found in older buildings after crossing bridges under the glacial sheet. One edifice hewn from the solid rock seemed to go back 40 or possibly even 50 million years to the lower Eocene or upper Cretaceous and contained bas-reliefs of an artistry surpassing anything else with one tremendous exception that we encountered. That was, we have since agreed, the oldest domestic structure we traversed. Were it not for the support of those snapshots soon to be made public, I would refrain from telling what I found and inferred, lest I be confined as a madman. Of course, the infinitely early parts of the patchwork tale, representing the pre-terrestrial life of the star-headed beings on other planets and other galaxies and in other universes, can readily be interpreted as the fantastic mythology of those beings themselves and such parts sometimes involve designs and diagrams so uncannily close to the latest findings of mathematics and astrophysics that I scarcely know what to think. Let others judge when they see the photographs I shall publish. Naturally, no one set of carvings which we encountered told more than a fraction of any connected story, nor do we even begin to come upon the various stages of that story in their proper order. Some of the vast rooms were independent units so far as their designs were concerned, whilst in other cases a continuous chronicle would be carried through a series of rooms and corridors. The best of the maps and diagrams were on the walls of a frightful abyss below even the ancient ground level, a cavern perhaps 200 feet square and 60 feet high, which had almost undoubtedly been an educational center of some sort. There were many provoking repetitions of the same material in different rooms and buildings since certain chapters of experience, and certain summaries or phases of racial history had evidently been favorites with different decorators or dwellers. Sometimes, though, variant versions of the same theme proved useful in settling debatable points and filling in gaps. I still wonder that we did do so much in the short time at our disposal. Of course, we even now have only the barest outline and much of that was obtained later on from a study of the photographs and sketches we made. It may be the effect of this later study, the revived memories and vague impressions acting in conjunction with his general sensitiveness and with that final supposed horror glimpse, whose essence he will not reveal even to me, which has been the immediate source of Danforth's present breakdown. But it had to be for we could not issue our warning intelligently without the fullest possible information, and the issuance of that warning is a prime necessity. Certain lingering influences in that unknown Antarctic world of disordered time and alien natural law make it imperative that further exploration be discouraged. <laughs>